Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. We are joined today by Jeffrey Hatcher, who prefers to be called Sir Jeffrey. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> Jeff Hatcher, uh, recently on Broadway, this uh, writer of Never Gonna Dance, the Jerome Kern musical that was on Broadway last season, and currently about to um, open nationally a new motion picture, which he has written. Jeff Hatcher is a well-known playwright with many uh, companies uh, around this country, regional theater, and just a whole long list of plays and some new ones coming up. We're going to get into all that today. Jeff, tell us about the movie now, Stage Beauty, and how you came upon the subject to begin with. Well, I'm, I, I suppose I'm like all of us. I was reading Samuel Pepys's diary one summer just for the fun of it. and uh, um, Some uh, light summer reading. Yes. Well, you know, they're like 78 volumes. But, <laughs> but no, seriously, I was, it actually all came about through theater. I was researching a, a musical that we were uh, workshopping over at Manhattan Theater Club that took place back in the uh, early 18th century. And I knew that Pepys was from the 1660s, but I thought, well, that's close enough. I'll, I'll do some research into him. And uh, under the theater index, there are a lot of listings for an actor named Kiniston, Edward Kiniston. And uh, it was obvious that he was one of Pepys' favorite actors, and he was the foremost, foremost portrayer of uh, uh, women in Shakespearean roles on stage. And, uh, you know, he was a huge uh, cross-dressing star. He was a superstar of the London stage. And then Charles II came back from exile and said, well, you know, I've seen that there are women playing on the stage in France and Holland. Why don't we have women play roles here in England? And so Kinniston was suddenly out of a job. And I thought, uh, well, this is a terrific idea for a play. Obviously, it can be about whole number of things. Um, it can be about identity. It can be about what happens to someone when there's a great cultural sea change. And uh, so I, the idea germinated for a while, and uh, luckily someone called up and said, time uh, time to write it down. How much detail was there? How much were you working with the historical record, and how much did you invent? Well, I'd say that both in the play and the film, about 35 40% of it is completely real. Uh, once people see the film, I'll be happy to point out those sections to them. But, well, uh, they can call you. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, obviously the king did come back and uh, make all these changes. His um, mistress was Nell Gwynn. She's in the film. Uh, Kiniston is real. So is the woman who first played uh, on the London stage, an actress named Margaret Hughes. So a lot of the incidents are completely true. Uh, and the rest was me playing connect-a-dot to try to uh, fictionalize those things that we don't know and try to make sense of them. And just refreshing our memories from uh, what we may have learned in school, this was the Restoration period in England? Right. Where about the, the Puritans had been basically controlling things? Right. The Puritans ran things from around 1640 to 1660. That's when mm -hmm. Cromwell was in charge. And King Charles I had been beheaded, and his son Charles II had been exiled to the continent. So uh, this was a period uh, when there was no theater going on anywhere. But interestingly enough, there was an underground theater all during the Puritan interregnum. And uh, so an actor like Edward Kiniston would have been trained in secret as were other actors, because uh, in those days, the theater community felt it's going to come back. 
someday the theater doors are going to open again. So they kept it alive, uh, which I think is fascinating. There's probably a story to be told about those people, too. But they knew at some point the Puritan interregnum would end, and at that point people would be ready to see theater again. Now, you wrote the play, which was called, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, The Complete Female Stage Beauty. Complete Female Stage Beauty was a, uh, uh, a way of describing women on the stage at the time, because if you had a woman who was actually playing a woman on stage, the audience was sometimes confused. They'd been used to seeing very beautiful young men playing women, and so if you advertised a complete female stage beauty, that meant that it was indeed a woman and not a man. It was the real thing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The real McCoy. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit of an archaic title, and eventually we changed the film's title to Stage Beauty because, well, frankly, some people couldn't remember the title, <laughs> and we spelled complete the old-fashioned way with a right. A-T at the end, right. and I think that uh, we were all worried it would drive audiences away. That's why I wasn't sure how to pronounce it. <laughs> now, when, when, when did you write the play, and then what was the transition from the play to the movie itself, well, which uh, is called just simply Stage Beauty? Right. The, um, uh, the play was written in 1999. Ed Herondine at the Contemporary American Theater Festival in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, had uh, a play dump out on him. He needed a play for the summer. And he called me up in January and said, do you have any ideas that you've been thinking of writing? And I said, well, I've got this one I call Complete Female Stage Beauty. And he said, well, here's the bit. We can announce it now. We'll commission it in uh, conjunction with the City Theater in Pittsburgh, which Mark Masterson was running at the time. Uh, But he said, uh, basically, I need the script by April. So he really, you know, wrote the check and put me under the gun. And, in fact, we were designing the sets around the uh, synopsis and the, uh, you know, the outline of the play Mm -hmm. at a certain point. So I would say, well, we need a set that looks like this or we need a setting that looks like this. But trust me, I'll give you the the actual scene in about three weeks. So, I mean, they were really great and we worked at top speed. And then the transition from there to the film – well, there were a number of regional productions. Yeah, we went to uh, Shepherdstown uh, Contemporary American Theater Festival and the City Theater share the premiere. Uh, so we did uh, the premiere in West Virginia, and then we did it in Pittsburgh just a couple months later. And then later Philadelphia Theater Company, Walter Bobby, who's done Chicago and most recently 20th Century, directed it there. Uh, Mark Lamos directed it out at the Old Globe in San Diego. So it had a couple of really swell productions along the way. So where did Tribeca Films, where does Robert De Niro come, <laughs> come to this material? Well, I credit my agents over at uh, William Morris, Jack Tantliff and John Santiani and Charmaine Forenzi. They got the script out because they thought that the play might make a good film. And I have to admit the play was written in you know many, many many scenes and lots of characters. So although I hadn't intended it, it was sort of leaning towards screenplay land already. And they just thought it would make a good film, so they got it out to people. And uh, Hardy Justice at uh, De Niro's company, Tribeca, showed it to De Niro and Jane Rosenthal. And um, Rachel Cohen at Artisan liked it, and so they banded together to get it moving. And it's sort of fascinating because we think of, you know, Tribeca films, very American, and it feels like, you know, and Grant, you're an American writer – but you watch the film, and for the most part, you feel like you're watching a British film. Well, that's true, but I think uh, I, I don't want to lay claims for the film being edgy or gritty or anything like that, but we all rather hoped that both the play and the film had a contemporary feeling, especially when it was discussing you know male-female roles, gender, sexuality, all that. So I think that really appealed to them you know, as a contemporary subject matter. Uh, the fact that it takes place during the Restoration, I think that's the, the veneer, the icing. 
but uh, they really responded to this man, this actor who was confused about his identity and his sexuality and, uh, you know, hit bottom before he could climb up. So I think that's what grabbed them at, at gut level. Well, the, the film is based on the two central characters, this Ned Kiniston person who is played by Billy Crudup and uh, Maria, is it, uh, Mariah. We say Mariah because it sounds fancy. Spell, spell Maria, perhaps <laughs> Mariah, played by Claire Danes. We're like, like the wind, Mariah. <laughs> yeah. Can you just kind of um, give us a, a synopsis of the story so the listeners will understand what we're talking about? Sure. Well, well at the beginning of the film, we're in the 1660s, and uh, the restoration has just begun. And London is a wide-open town. They're spending money. The theaters are open. People are doing dirty poems. You know, it's, it's that basic reaction after you've been pent up for 20 years. And Ned Kiniston is the um, biggest star of the London stage playing women in, uh, at Thomas Betterton Theater. And he's most famous for the role of Desdemona. And he has a dresser, an assistant named Mariah, who's desirous of his career on stage. And we find out early in the film that she is actually sneaking off at night to perform in a pub version of Othello. And uh, by certain machinations, uh, her uh, performance is revealed, and instead of the King of England being upset about it, he says, well, I think that sounds like fun. I think there should be women on the stage. And overnight, the world has changed, and suddenly women are flooding the stages, and Ned Kiniston finds himself in competition with not only Mariah, but pretty much every other woman in London who's ever wanted to be an actress. And then to add uh, bitter icing on the cake, the uh, King issues a further edict that states men cannot any longer play women. And so we always kind of think of it as a strange reverse affirmative action. You know, Kiniston has done one thing really well all of his life, and now he's prohibited from doing so. Well, there's a bit of women's liberation, uh, shall we say, uh, in this movie for 1660. Was that, in fact, historically the case, or was that a little... No, it's precisely the case. In fact, we know that in December of 1661, the first woman appears on stage in a production of Othello as Desdemona, and that's in Samuel Pepys's diary. And that's really all we know. We don't know what made the king change his mind. We don't know what historical political movements uh, forced this change. All we know is that it happened. And then a few months later, the king prohibited men from ever playing again. So, um, I mean, I found it tantalizing to think, you know, how this might have come about. And the idea that uh, Mariah was portraying women in sort of downtown underground theater struck me as a kind of interesting idea. Uh, so in the film, it's kind of like she goes down to the East Village and is doing her off-off-Broadway mm-hmm. Desdemona. And of course, she was basically violating the king's law, which prohibited women from appearing on any stage. Yes, even. well, the only place that women were allowed to appear on stage were, was actually in the king's palace. Mm-hmm. In, in the palace, they could do anything they liked. And, of course, it was wildly hypocritical. Uh, in fact, in the film, we show the king's mistress, Nell Gwynne, doing a performance at the palace. But she would not have been allowed to do that on a public stage. And in those days, the stages were licensed by the crown. So you couldn't really open an official theater for business unless the king said it was all right. Um, so the decision by the king to overlook this transgression and open things up was seen at the time and was a, you know, a sign of his liberality. What were the opportunities for you in transitioning this from a stage work to a film work? Because obviously you didn't have the limitations. Certainly the, some of the theaters that you mentioned, the, the ones that premiered it, are not large companies. Their resources may be more limited, and suddenly you have the world at your feet. And also, were there changes either that that the film companies were looking for or when Sir Richard Eyre came on as the director – 
were there things that he wanted to see explored, and were there script changes accordingly? Well, for example, uh, in the various productions we've done, um, uh, there's been tons and tons of doubling. So, you know, a cast of 10 or 12 might play 20 or 30-some people. And sometimes we even switched genders, so the women were playing men and the men were playing women, because, you know, that was also a theme of the play. So you And you can do that in, in theater, but in film, when you do that, they're just, compl- you know, the audience is completely confused. I think that's one of the interesting differences in the lexicon between film and theater. We're used to that in the theater, and in film, it's like, why would you do that? We'd just hire another actor. That becomes, I think, a budgetary question more than anything else. But for the film, uh, the major changes were, I mean, aside from opening up certain scenes and dividing up longer scenes, uh, we combined two characters. The character of Mariah that Claire Danes plays in the film was actually two different characters in the uh, in the play. And um, it's funny because Mark Masterson, who directed it in Pittsburgh and who now runs Actors Theatre of Louisville, he said, you know, you should combine these two characters. And I said, oh, sure, sure, sure. And I kind of passed by that idea. And then another director looked at it and said, you know, it would be kind of nifty if you combine these two. Yeah, 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 sure. And then Richard Eyre said it and Hardy Justice said it. And I thought, well, look, this is an idea that's staring it's me in the face. It's a groundswell. Yeah, really. You know, the, uh, so I, I was just too stupid to, to have seen it. But in the play, um, there was a dresser who loved Ned Keniston and she was devoted to him. And later she became an actress. And there was a woman named Margaret Hughes who was the first actress on the stage. And he hated her with a passion. And I thought it worked well on stage, but obviously by combining the characters together, it centralized both the affection and the, um, the conflict and onto one spine, onto one woman. And I think it makes it uh, a lot better. So that was the single biggest change we made from play to, to film. But otherwise, I, I'd say it's a fairly good representation of the, of the play, certainly in terms of the theme, certainly in terms of the ideas. Um, I think, like usual, you know, you sit in the theater from 8 o'clock to 10.30 with a 15-minute intermission. That seems standard. But, uh, you know, a two-hour and 15-minute film is a bit of a push. So I think most of it was winnowing things down and keeping scenes tighter than they might have been on stage. Now, the film was shot in England with a primarily British cast Mm -hmm. and primarily British people behind the scenes, but the two stars, both American. Well, yeah, which is kind of luck of the draw. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people think that we cast American actors because it would be better for box office in America. Um, but in, in point of fact, the character of Keniston, there, there were so few people in the universe that we could think of to play it. I mean, you have to be a very lithe young man. You can't be terribly tall. You can't be terribly bulky. Uh, you have to have a handsome face that also can lend itself to fine features. Uh, you have to be trained in Shakespeare because we do a lot of Othello in the film. And frankly, even just for my dialogue, you have to be the kind of person who could rattle through it with one breath. And that usually suggests stage training. And there are not that many guys out there. Uh, Richard Eyre, the director of the film, was talking about it earlier today. And he said, well, maybe Robert Downey Jr. could have done it. Maybe Jude Law could have done it. But Richard always wanted Billy Crudup. Uh, Richard had produced um, uh, Arcadia in London, and then when they did it at Lincoln Center, Billy played uh, the, one of the main roles. And so Richard had known Billy for years, and he think, I think, I think Billy's the guy. He can do the English accent, um, and he's perfect in all the other ways. So Billy, it was one, two, three. And then Claire actually came in to audition. Claire Danes was... Not your first thought to play an English woman in the 1660s. No, not at all. And, and But Richard had always been um, a fan of hers, and... Uh, 
um, she was willing to come into audition, and she came in on a dreadfully snowy day, mm-hmm. and she looked a wreck, and she just sat down and started reading, and bingo, one, two, three. So, uh, you know, again, it wasn't intentional, but but there you have it. The film has a wonderful aura of what one would imagine the 1660s looked like and felt like in London. The sets are magnificent. You actually built two theaters. Yes, yes. Um, the uh, A lot of the things we used, of course, were existing you know, uh, houses, buildings, palaces around London. But uh, Richard did have the entire uh, Thomas Betterton Theater built at Shepperton, and it's a gorgeous thing. Uh, he did a lot of research that discovered that at the time, because the theaters had been out of business for 20 years, they had to convert to existing buildings. So it was an indoor tennis court that Thomas Betterton took over and made into a theater. And so the theater we have is, you know, it's a basic wooden thing that's painted beautifully, but there's even gravel on the floor. So there's an outdoorsy quality, even though it's got a roof. Hmm. Um, But now they did a fabulous job on that. And Richard used a lot of theater people in it. Uh, The costumes are are theater costumes. Uh, In fact, he wanted to work with people whose primary experience had been in the theater and not in film for the reasons you can imagine. I'm one of those people who stays to the very last credit, and I did read the costume credits at uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company, was it? Uh, Well, I don't. They might have uh, uh, rented some things from there. You stay longer in the credits than (laughs) I do. (laughs) Uh, Well, your name is at the beginning of the film, so yes, that's all I stay for. I stay for the credits at the beginning, and then I leave. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you, Jeff. You, um, it's it's pretty remarkable. You've had this extensive career in regional theater, and you've done some screenwriting before, but now you're you know you're working with a lot of terrific English performers. You've got Sir Richard Eyre, who ran the National Theatre of London, who's directing the film. Um, you're coming off of a couple of days of just jam packed interviews and and a New York premiere. Um, what what's that like in the in the contrast to being this incredibly prolific working playwright here? Well, you know, one's heart is always with the theater for all the reasons we imagine. You know, there's just something more comfortable about the theater. Uh, you're more at home in the theater than you are, say, in the soundstage. But this has been dazzling. It's been a heck of a lot of fun. Um, I mean, obviously, it's great to see all the people come to the show. And see, I call it a show. I don't call it a film. Um, and uh, and react to it pretty much the same every Every night, you know, you say, well, that's where they're supposed to laugh and that's where they're supposed to gasp. And you say, well, great. You know, the machine is working. Um, And it's a lot of fun, all the red carpet things, you know. But uh, I think it's as much fun to have an opening night at any regional theater or off-Broadway theater, too. I mean, it's – and it's not even so much a question of scale. You know, I think any time that you put your work out there and you collaborate with people and people show up and it's a big theater party, why ever not? You've written, obviously, many plays, regional theater. You've written now screenplays. You've written television scripts. Columbo comes to mind. Any one of those mediums you prefer to work in? Oh, it's always the theater. I mean, the the film is the film world is great. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, there is the dazzle of working with the kind of people that you can get in film. And there is a power to working on a screenplay. You know, scene 12, you're at the bottom of the ocean. Scene 13, you're in a desert. You know, it's it's you don't have to think about craft quite so much. You when, when you're writing for the stage, it's always how long does the actor have to get off stage, change his outfit, and then get back on again. We have, we have all those issues of craft in the theater. Um, so there is something really fun about a screenplay where you know you've got this huge army of people out there who will, for millions of dollars, make this thing work out for you. But you know, one's home is the theater. You know, so that, that's the place I like to stay. How, how did you get into this business to begin with? 
Well, I started out as an actor. Uh, I, I think acting is is often the entry point for most of us, at least 90% of us. Um, and then bit by bit, we get winnowed out. And I was one of those. I went to NYU um, theater in the 80s. And, um, you know, I, I, I was the kind of actor who played old guys. You know, I was always playing, you know, Judge Brack, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, somebody with a snifter of brandy. And I was 22, and it was kind of mm-hmm. pathetic, you know. <laughs> and uh, I'd get casting directors who'd say, you know, we actually have some old guys we can cast. You know, <laughs> Philip Bosco is still alive. We don't need you. Um, so I slowly moved into writing. and uh, But I, I'd, I'd like to get myself back into acting some more. I really enjoy it. So there's a line in, in, in the movie um, – that I think Ned Kiniston delivers, and I, I'm going to totally botch it so you can straighten me out as to the way you wrote it, about the actor is the part, the part is the actor. How does that line? Oh, he says, um, a part doesn't belong to an actor, an actor belongs to a part. And uh, I think both things are true. I mean, in, in one sense, you know, Mama Rose is always Ethel Merman. And in another sense, everybody has to give themselves over to Mama Rose. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, and I think we can all think of examples like that. Uh, for example, uh, I don't think Stanley, Stanley Kowalski has belonged to anybody since Brando and you know, try as people do. And maybe nobody's really uh, been able to own Richard III since Olivier. It's it's interesting how sometimes an actor's persona just burns itself onto a role. So did so did so did that come that line come from your own experience of being an actor? In other words, being an actor did that help you become a writer? Well, I think so. Uh, there's a friend of mine named Michael Lupu who's uh, out at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, where I live. And Michael, uh, who's Romanian, says, "I can always tell when an actor has become a writer." And the reason is, he says, because we all try to give really interesting things for the actors to say. It doesn't mean the play will necessarily be good, but I think we're very aware that every actor on stage wants his moment. You know, maybe it's a laugh or maybe it's a death scene or something. But we know what it's like to play thankless roles, you know, just you know, the waiter or the soldier who says, look. Um, <laughs> nobody likes to play those roles. So I think when, when actors become writers, we try to give something to everyone. And, uh, and that often is telling. Have you thought about writing for yourself? Creating? I did, actually. Um, there's a friend of mine named Bill Corbett who uh, uh, works or used to write for Mystery Science Theater. The two of us did monologues at our Fringe Festival out in Minnesota. And because, you know, we're in our 40s now and we thought it would be great to be hip like the young folk, you know, and do this big Fringe Festival. So I write a, wrote a monologue for myself called The Murderer about a man who... Uh, marries his mother-in-law when she's just about to die so that he can inherit all of her money without it going to taxes. So it was was based on real life. And um, I had a great time. It was a half hour long. Uh, I just had an absolute ball. I'm going to try to do it again um, this winter. But it also made me remember how hard it is to be an actor because I hadn't done this in 20 years. All the things an actor has to think about while a performance is going on, it's just amazing. You know, and the monologues are the hardest thing because there's nobody to throw the ball back to. Um, but yeah, no, I'd, I'd I'd write for myself all day long if they'd let me. Now, mm-hmm. in in your writing, in looking at so many of the pieces that you've done, you've done a lot of adapting, and of course, you've just adapted yourself for the film. But certainly, in in one piece of yours, which is now all over the country, uh, the stage version of Tuesdays with Maury, you've you've adapted existing work, and there's there's countless others. How is that? taking something existing, whether of your own creation or another artist, and working on it? Well, uh, I actually got into adaptation uh, not by accident, but firmly by design. I had a number of friends who were adapting things, and I thought it was a great gig. 
And I thought, I've really got to get into this. So I started contacting artistic directors around the country saying, is there something you have always wanted to have adapted? Because you've got uh, the acting company has a series of Poe stories that you've right. adapted. I remember a number of years ago seeing your two-actor version of Turn of the Screw. Yeah, acting company is doing that this year, too. So... Um, and I've done Goldoni and Ennui and uh, Shaw. I adopted Shaw's last uh, novel. Um, but I, I – and people started saying, yeah, I'd like to adapt this. And so I kind of saw them as hired gun gigs at first. But uh, truth be told, you know, sometimes when you're writing a lot of your own material, you know, you can go to the well a little once too often. And an adaptation gig is great because you get to re-energize yourself. It, it, it's a different part of your brain. Uh, you've already got the subject matter in front of you, and you can tell what will work on stage versus what won't. And so there are technical um, pleasures to be had in wrestling with that. And I think it also re-energizes you for the next time you do one of your own original pieces. But, uh, yeah, I've loved doing the adaptations. And um, uh, the Tuesdays with Maury one was interesting because usually I work with authors who are dead and they can't argue with you. So. <laughs> Mitch Album can argue with you. <laughs> Mitch and I, yeah, I like Mitch a lot. We, we did have plenty of arguments about it. Um, and now Mitch has actually written Become plays. Become playwright himself. Yeah, yes. he's got a play that's a big hit out in Detroit, you know. Uh, but that was interesting because it, it's true. When you're adapting, you know, uh, Henry James or, or any of these others, uh, Shaw, um, they're great. They're great partners, and they can't argue with you. And it's more complicated on Tuesdays with Maury because, of course, not only are you adapting something written by Mitch Album, but you are adapting a character, Mitch Album, who Mitch wrote about previously. So not only is it just somebody saying, well, this is how I wrote it, and I hate losing that scene, you're adapting his life as he interpreted it. Exactly. And making a portrayal. How, that's got to be a very complicated dynamic. Well, it is. And, you know, when Mitch basically auditioned writers to do that, uh, I know a lot of guys who met with him. And, uh, you know, in every case, I think he was always a bit resistant to the idea that his character was more than an interlocutor, a moderator. And, you know, we said, basically, this is not Maury's story. Maury is the constant. You're the guy who changes. And he'd written that into the book, but I don't think he liked actually seeing it up on stage as much. But uh, when we did it in New York uh, with uh, David S. Bjornsson directed it and John Tenney and Alvin Epstein were in it, um, you know, I think Mitch really started to enjoy that. And I think I'd be hard. Look, if, if I saw somebody portraying me on stage... And, you know, if you're going to have a journey as a character, assumptively you're going to show the good and the bad. I think that would be difficult, too. But uh, we're very, it's out around the country, and it's doing very well, and, and I'm very pleased. And also, it really – you can tell it affects people, not just because of their experience of Maury Schwartz, but also uh, because of their own experiences with death and loss and illness. And, you know, it, it, it's nice when you know that people have been affected on an emotional level. Now, you have another new project that you're working on called – mysteriously, the Casanova Project. The Casanova Project. Well, that's just because they, they can't decide on a title. It, it sounds like a, like a sci-fi thing. It could be. Um, that's uh, for Lassa Hallstrom and Disney. And uh, I was brought in on rewrites on that. It had uh, been a couple of other writers had worked on it. And it's basically about how Casanova becomes Casanova. You know, young Casanova, the prequel to Casanova. A film. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're shooting that in Venice right now. 
So that's uh, I'm afraid that's more in wigs and sword territory. That's one of the interesting things about film that's different, I think, from, from stage. If you do one kind of thing, and in this case, stage beauty obviously takes place in the times of wigs and capes and swords, then they immediately say, well, I guess that guy can do this. Oh, so in other words, all the cape and sword movies or costume, period costumes may come your way. Well, I, I, I did two other uh, screenplays right after stage beauty that are set in the 18th century, you know, slowly climbing my towards the 20th and 21st. But it's strange. It's uh, Richard Eyre was talking about uh, this himself. He said after he did the film of Iris with Judy Dench, which is about Iris Murdoch and Alzheimer's, the only things he was offered were old people dying and, and mental disease things. It's like, well, he must love to do this. I don't think they realize that, you know, once you do one thing, you want to shift gears into something else. Mm-hmm. You ever considered doing musicals? Well, I have. You have done music. I did one. I did uh, – uh, well, I've done two, actually. That's not uh-huh. right. Uh, we did one? Never Gonna Dance last year. At of the, course. Uh, of course. I forgot that one. Oh, yeah. not to yeah. worry. Yeah. And um, uh, I've been working with Henry Krieger and Bill Russell on a play that we called Lucky Duck, which is kind of a wacky version of uh, The Ugly Duckling that we uh-huh. just did out at the Old Globe. So, uh, yeah, I love working in musicals. In fact, musicals are most like uh, working on films, I think, because nine times out of ten, the idea is not normally engendered by – you know, the book writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, Once in a Blue Moon, yes, Meredith Wilson, that kind of thing. But usually somebody gets an idea and they say, let's go hire a book writer, a composer, etc." So in that sense, you know that you're part of a collaboration and you kind of work for the boss. And that's very similar to the way things work in, in film, I'm learning. Whereas, you know, as a playwright, even if you're at the tiniest 99-seat house in the smallest state of the union, uh, you know, you're, it's your idea, you're the boss, and they treat you awfully nice. Well, it's interesting. You know, we talked. You talked before about the uh, the idea that you like working within the strictures. You know, the idea that you know there's something established when you're doing an adaptation. I'm also noticing how much of your work deals in historical period, and and in fact, because um, you've got a Picasso, which is going to be seen in New York later this season, which is set uh, in Germany. Well, no, it's uh, set in Paris during the occupation. I'm sorry. Um, you know. How much of that historical Scotland Road, which takes off at least from from the idea of the Titanic, you just spoke about Casanova, have you moved out of how much modern work do you get the opportunity to do now and how much how much do you find that historical basis to be an opportunity for? Well, some of that, I, I guess there are some similarities in theater uh, to the film world because uh, A. Picasso, for example, was suggested to me by uh, Philip Langner from the Theater Guild and uh, Joey Tillinger. They'd wanted to do a touring show about Picasso, a one-man show. And uh, Joey had seen uh, something of mine at uh, Manhattan Theater Club a couple of years ago, and he said, well, call Jeffrey. So Philip called me and said, we want to do something about Picasso. So in a case like that, it's not like I was sitting around saying, gee, i got to do something about someone in the past, but rather that someone thought I might be good for that kind of thing. And then it evolved to a two-character play, and, and we're doing it at MTC. But, um, yeah, I seem to like uh, – if I were to have a pathetic business card, it would say <laughs> Jeffrey Hatcher, Footnotes of History, you know. <laughs> Because what I like to find, um, either by design or by accident, are characters or events that are in the shadows of some major historical event. Uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a play. You know, it's not a terribly successful play, but but it's it's got some nice things in it called Sockdology. And it was about the actors who were in uh, uh, Our American Cousin, The Night Lincoln Was Shot. So, you know, usually when you think Lincoln was shot, you tell the story of Lincoln being shot. And... Um, 
I thought, well, what happened to all these actors? They were interrogated after the show. You know, uh, Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, was kind of their Donald Rumsfeld and John Ashcroft all whipped in together. What's it like when you're a bunch of actors and they think that you might have been in on the killing of the president? Uh, I guess Keniston's like that, too. Uh, with Picasso, it's a period about which we don't know much in Picasso's life. He was during he was in Paris during the occupation. He laid low. But I'd read a story about how often he was interrogated by the Nazis. They liked to tease him and torture him a bit and threaten him. And then one day uh, it was announced that they were going to have an auto de fe, a burning of paintings in the Tuileries. And they brought him in to authenticate some of his paintings. And lo and behold, he finds out that the authentication is for their burning. Uh So I thought, well, that'll be a nifty play. Um, (laughs) So, uh, you know, sometimes I, I just like going at things from the side. You know, sometimes I think it's just too obvious to write the story about the Iraq war. You know, what's the strange sideline story that nobody's looked at? So I guess I do like that. Hmm. And with Never Gonna Dance, that process of taking a classic film and keeping the spirit of it for a modern audience. And interestingly, that's going to get that's going over to Japan shortly. I have no idea how they're going to make sense of it in Japan. <laughs> at least at least uh, they'll make sense of the dance and the music. I don't know what they'll make sense of the book. Uh, I don't know who's translated it. But yeah, they do it. They're going to do it in Japan, I think within the next month or two. And uh, I guess they do things very differently over there. Have have uh, either of you been over there to see? No. No. Apparently they do them in these gigantic houses. And run them for just a couple of months, but they are, you know, like the size of football stadiums. Hmm. Um, they do everything different over there. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to go see it, but uh, uh, I'd be interested to see what they think about it. I mean, we always thought of Never Going to Dance as, you know, it's a dance show and it has a nice light little book and some lovely music. So uh, I suppose it'll work for them. I certainly hope so. I'm sure it will. Beyond Japan and beyond things we've been talking about, any other projects on the horizon? that we can talk about publicly, at least. Oh, sure. Um, Screenplay-wise, I'm working on a um, screenplay called Silent Star for Kim Pierce, who did Boys Don't Cry, and that's about uh, a murder mystery set in Hollywood during the 20s, a real-life murder mystery uh, that kind of brought down Hollywood and actually led to the beginnings of the Hayes office. Uh, So I'm doing that. And um, then I'm going to do a film about um, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes as a very old man uh, in the 1940s. Uh, it's called a. It's based on a book by Mitch Cullen called A Trick of the Mind. So that's in film world. And then um, after a Picasso, who knows? So I just hope to get back on stage as soon as possible. Well, you're on the screen right now in Stage Beauty. Uh, the play that you wrote has been turned into a movie starring Billy Crudup and uh, Claire Danes. And it will be opening in theaters around the country within days or, or weeks, I guess. From Even right as now. we speak. Even as we speak. It's, been op- it's open already in New York and L.A. and it will be opening the theaters elsewhere. Jeff Hatcher, thank you for joining us today on Downstage Center. Thank you very much. For Downstage Center, I'm Howard Sherman of the American Theatre Wing. I want to remind everybody that you can listen to these interviews archived as well as countless hours of multimedia conversation about the theater on our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM28 on Broadway, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap. Thank you. <laughs>